Welcome to the Grove Church. My name is Caleb Brazier, the, um, one of the pastors here at the Grove. So, so glad to have you guys here with us uh, this morning. Uh, the, we exist as a church uh, to make disciples who know, treasure, and obey Christ. So we see Jesus' command to his disciples in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples uh, is the command and mission of every single church. Um, and we want to be disciples who are touched in every area and affection of our life, both our minds, our hearts, and our hands, that we know, treasure, and obey him. Well, one of the things that marks us here at the Grove is we are expository preachers. So what that means is the majority of time, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. Uh, we want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. And so we are currently walking through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, and so we're right in the middle of that study. And so if you uh, grab your Bible, you can go ahead and get it and turn it to 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 22 this morning chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the hardback ones there next to you. Um, it's on page uh, 253 and 254. Um, and if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that Bible with you. That's our gift to you. Um, will be on page 253 and 254. So a quick run-up to what we're, because we're jumping right into the middle of this story. Um, there has been this kind of back and forth between these two main characters now in 1 Samuel, these guys named King David and King Saul. Uh, and they have been going at each other now for the last few chapters. So Saul was the very first king of Israel, anointed by God, chosen by this prophet named Samuel. Saul starts off, okay, things are going fine. He's defeating the Philistines. Israel's coming up, coming together. Saul's protecting them. But slowly, Saul begins to turn his back on God. He begins to disobey some of God's commands. Um, he begins to kind of shave some corners. And increasingly, you see uh, Saul turn his back on God. And as that happened, God then shifts his anointing onto this other guy named David and chooses David to be the king. David's this small little runt in the family. Um, he's the most modern day comparison. He's like the Jonathan Taylor Thomas of, first intro of Israel uh, at the time. He's this young, ruddy, handsome kid that Samuel says he's the one that's going to be the next king. And his dad and his brothers are like, really him? He's the youngest. He's, he's a shepherd. I, surely you, you don't mean him. And we learn something about God, that God doesn't look on the outside. He looks at the inside. So that in 1 Samuel 16. And so God chooses David to be his next king. And from that point on then, David's popularity just soars through the ceiling. Next chapter, he defeats Goliath. Then he becomes a national hero. Right? If anybody watched last night at about 10.30, the Lakers tipped off for LeBron James' first home game at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. Um, LeBron doesn't have anything on David's popularity. We'll put it that way. Uh, David was a national. They began to write songs about him. Now, I realize LeBron came out on the stage with Drake a couple weeks ago, but David had songs written about him. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of, tens of thousands. He was soaring in popularity. Saul, he continued to r uh, rise in the ranks of the Israelite army and everything that he touched turned to victory. And as this happened, Saul watched as his popularity grew and he began to get jealous. Not only jealous, then he began to get upset because what was once his glory was now being shifted to David's. And he didn't like it. And he began this plot to take him out. And so at first he tried to just kill him by, um, uh, by putting him in harm's way. Well, David would defeat the Philistines that Saul put him in the place of. Then he tried to actually go and murder him, but those plights didn't work. Eventually Saul just tried to go and kill him himself, but even he couldn't kill David. 
And so we see last week then, David is now on the run. He knows Saul is trying to kill him. David flees Israel, kind of in a last-ditch effort. He goes to this priest named Ahimelech in the city named Nob. It's where the sanctuary was in Israel. And there he gets some food, and he gets Goliath's sword, and then he keeps running. He goes to a couple of other uh, Gentile then kings to try to find safety. But it's important that we remember that meeting last week with the priest of Israel, Ahimelech. And when he went there, remember David lied to him and, and didn't tell him why he was on the run. David tried to protect Ahimelech to make sure that he didn't have any kind uh, of knowledge of what David was doing. But he did still feed him and give him a sword. And there was this other character we saw last week that was there at that meeting named Doeg. And you, you read his name and you know that he's a bad guy. His name's Doeg, the Edomite, <laughs> right? He doesn't have a chance. And we'll see this week, he comes back then into the picture. And so David's on the run. He's now bounced around to a few different cities. And now in 22, Saul hears of where he is and he goes to take and continue his revenge. So now in chapter 22, we'll be in verses 6 through the end of the chapter, verse 23. Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And at that time, Saul was in Gibeah, sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. His spear was in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants, Listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give you all the, your fields and vineyards? Do you think that he'll make you all the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me, as is the case today. And then Doeg, the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. The king sent messengers to summon the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were priests in Nob. All of them came to the king. Then Saul said, listen, son of Ahitub. I'm at your service, my lord, he said. Saul asked him, why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? You gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. Ahimelech replied to the king, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He's the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and honored in your house. Was today the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Please don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or any of my father's family, for your servant didn't have any idea about all of this. But the king said, you will die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. And the king ordered the guards standing by him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they sided with David, for they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. The king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, go and execute the priests. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priest, with the sword. Both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. 
However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there that day and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. You will be safe with me. So you can feel the tension is rising and, and here we see the lowest point that Saul has reached. He's now gone beyond just trying to kill one man. He's now taking out anyone who associates with him. So much so that he massacres an entire city. So as we see this and read this chapter, it can be easy to see the extremes that Saul goes to and go, well, this is just a story that we see the danger of Saul and how bad of a guy he was, but this doesn't have anything to do with my life. And I want to pause and make sure that we don't just write off this chapter with having no uh, instruction for us today. Because in particular, I think what we see in this chapter, we learn a lot about the effects and the nature of what sin is and just how far sin can take us. Friends, sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. As we see what sin does to Saul, my prayer for me and for us as a church is we would see the seriousness of sin in our own lives today. And so as we preach through the Bible, one of the things that we're committed to is preaching through the text. And so that means we don't skip chapters and we want each week to preach. Whatever the main passage is of the text, that's what we want the passage of the sermon to be. What that also means is we want the mood of the passage to be the mood of the text. And so this morning, there's going to be a bit of a heavier feel to this sermon because it is a heavier passage. And one of the things that I want us to, to make sure is that if you stay at this church for any length of time, that we see the entire scope of God's character and of ourselves as well. And there will be times in which we see the heights and beauty of God's grace and love. And there'll be times that we need to pause and see the danger of sin that maybe still lies in our own heart. So this morning, I want us to make sure that we're prepared and we see the enemy that still lies within us, the sin that lies within us. And there are three things I think that we see here in this chapter this morning in 1 Samuel 22, is we see the effects of sin in verses six through eight. We also then see the destruction of sin in verses nine through 19. And finally, the shelter from sin in verses 20 through 23. So first, the effects of sin. We see it first within Saul here. It turns Saul inward, and it also deceives him. Sin does the same for us. It turns us inward, and it also deceives us. Look at verses 6 through 8. Saul hears that David and his men have been discovered, and Saul's just sitting under a tree at the high place. It says his spear was in his hand. Now, that's more than just to try to paint a picture and kind of give Saul a prop of what he's doing. Saul is sitting there waiting to go and take somebody out. And so Saul is seeing, that's his weapon. We've seen him. He's tried to kill David a couple times with it. He's tried to kill his own son with the spear. So in a modern context, that'd be like Saul sitting under a palm tree here in Florida with a nine millimeter cocked and loaded, ready to go and take out his enemy. Saul has his weapon in his hand and his servants are standing around him. And he tells him, listen, men of Benjamin, verse seven, is Jesse's son going to give you all the fields and vineyards? 
You think he'll make all of you commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds? And in verse eight, listen to how many times he references himself. In one verse, he references himself eight times. That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait an ambush for me, as is the case today. Saul being caught up in his sin is now completely focused on himself. There's no other concern he has but his own glory and his own good. He's wrapped up in it. And friends, sin does the same to us today. When we get trapped in sin, it focuses us inward. Right? And the Christian life is not about you. The Christian life is not about us trying to preserve ourselves or having to fight for ourselves or focusing on what our best is. Right? Mark 12, Jesus was asked what the greatest command was and his response was not love yourself. He said the great command that we have to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength and then love your neighbor as yourself. We're nowhere in there. We're given as kind of the base of how we're supposed to love others. But Jesus says, you want to know what the Christian life is about? Love God and love others. Jesus has actually come to set us free from ourselves. He's the opposite of what sin does to us. We turn inward and then anyone that doesn't serve us gets in our way when we're wrapped up in sin. People are not used and they're not seen to be able to serve where they're not seen as the ones to love, they're seen as people to be used for our good and for our glory. We, we call it networking when really all it is is we're just trying to use people to advance our own careers. We call it whatever it may, we call it love, but at the end of the day, we just love them as long as they can serve us. The moment they stop doing that, we fall out of love with them when we move on. When we are at the center then sin turns us inward just like it did to Saul. But it's what we see Jesus has come to free us from that. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, Paul writes, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Paul said Jesus came to set you free from that, to not have to feel that burden to live for yourself but to live primarily for Jesus, for the one who died for them and was raised. And this is foundational. This inward turning is foundational in so much of the sin in our lives. Whether it be anger, whether it be gossip, whether it be stealing, and all of that foundational is this inward turn. We see it in the very first sin in Adam and Eve. What was it that enticed Adam away? The enemy came and said, hey, if you eat this, then you will be like God. You can raise yourself up. And Adam's like, oh, that's pretty good. I'd like to be like God. I'll take that apple. I'll take a bite. He was concerned about himself. And friends, it's the same with us. Whenever we get angry, we get mad on the road at somebody who's driving poorly. We're here in Florida. There's lots of bad drivers. Or we're at a restaurant whenever they mess up our order. And we go off the handles. If we get mad at our spouse and kids. Friends, what's underneath that is this idea that our world revolves around us and anyone who comes and touches on that comfort needs and deserves our wrath and our anger. How dare they cut me off on Highway 50? That light has been green for a second and a half now. 
I cannot believe they aren't moving yet. I have some place to be and I'm now a second and a half later. I need to let them know just how poor they are at driving their vehicle. I cannot believe they didn't put the mayonnaise on the side. Oh, and we lash out, or more seriously, at our kids or at our spouse. That lashing out of anger puts us at the center, and anger is our response. But underneath it is ourselves turning in. With gossip, there's something that feels good about talking about other people behind their backs. That's, that's the nature of every sin. If it didn't feel good, it wouldn't be tempting. But it doesn't last. And that's the deal with all of sin. It's good for just a moment but we're willing to tarnish someone's reputation for the sake of breaking the news or making ourselves feel better by trying to knock down other people. We put ourselves then at the center and don't worry about how it might affect others. Stealing, whether it be cheating on our taxes, shaving off just a few bucks from Uncle Sam, we don't have to be honest. Our soft drinks, you go with soft drinks? This was, this was actually a huge issue in my life for a while. I didn't quite realize it until recently. I would always order water and then go and get a Coke. This is a safe place. We've gone through confession. We've seen the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Friends, at the end of the day, that's lying and that's cheating. I would steal from Chipotle every single time I did it. And I would go, well, I'm poor. I don't have any money. Right? This is just a couple bucks. Chipotle's a multi-million dollar corporation. They'll be fine. They won't notice it. And eventually it got to the point where I didn't even have to try to justify it. I just kept on going. And at the heart of it, though, was me. I said, I need to save money. And we put ourselves at the middle. Friends, more seriously, there are other sins that we deal with in a room this size. Uh, I, I know that there are people sitting here, both men and women, that are struggling with pornography today. You've been struggling with it for years. You've had it hidden because you, you've, you're ashamed to come and, and actually confess that this is a struggle for you. You've told yourself over and over again, this will be the final time that it happens. And yet it keeps happening again and again. You put your hope that maybe then once you got married, it will stop, but you found that it hasn't stopped. And you're worried what will happen if you come forward and bring it to light. Friends, at the heart of that is putting ourselves at the very center. We push out true relationships or intimacy that we have, even the men or women that might be on the screen, and we use them for our own gratification. We put ourselves right in the center. That's the nature and the effect of sin. It has this inward bent where we look at ourselves and we stop looking at others. It's the opposite of what Jesus has come to set us free from. Not only does it make us self-centered, it also deceives us. Right, you look at Saul. Saul thought everyone was out to get him. Right, Saul's paranoid at this point. Right, you look at verse eight. He says, you all have conspired against me. Every single one of you, all my servants, you've conspired against me. Nobody told me that my son made a covenant with Jesse's son, that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me. So Saul has made up this story in his mind that Ahimelech, this priest, gave David the sword of Goliath so, so that David could then go and figure out with Saul, where, uh, figure out with Jonathan where Saul was going to be, wait in ambush, and then go and kill Saul. That's nowhere in this story. Saul has completely deceived himself. He thinks his servants, his own son, and David are out to get him. And then, not only that, he has zero remorse for anything he's done or anything he's about to do. He's somehow justifying this entire manhunt and the slaughter. And that's exactly what sin does. 
It both deceives us and helps us justify what we're doing. Or it'll be with anger. We go, oh, you know what? That's oh, just my personality type. Or, you know, it's only, it's only when my kids will respond. Or, man, that guy's just a terrible driver and he deserves it. If it's gossip, we say, well, I'm just going to tell the I'm just going to tell them and, you know, it won't go beyond that. They won't tell anybody. Or if it's stealing, we go, ah, oh, it's just a couple bucks. What's, the, what's it to Chipotle? Right? We do stuff like that so often we don't even need a rationale anymore. Pornography, we go, well, it's not hurting anyone. Or maybe this will, this will be the last time. That won't happen again until the next time it happens. And the most dangerous part is when it gets to a point where no longer we try to justify it or need any rationale but whenever it just becomes normal, we almost become numb to it. We kind of shrug our shoulders and go, well, it could be worse. Oh, well. And when you reach that point, sin is ready then to take you to the next step. Because that's how sin works. It doesn't want to just get you a step further. It wants to destroy your life. And that's what we see then secondly in the destruction of sin in verses 9 through 19. So Saul has been turned inward. He's been deceived by what's happening. And that leads now to this destruction completely to everyone around him. Saul didn't, but here's, here's what's important. Saul didn't start out wanting to kill just a slew of innocent priests and in an entire town. Saul wasn't anointed king earlier in 1 Samuel and gone, you know what, I'm going to be king. Also, I'm going to kill a whole city of priests. Sin slowly got him there. Incrementally. It started with just a quote-unquote little sin. In chapter 13, the very first thing that we see is Saul turns away from God. The very first thing that Saul does is, is David, I mean, uh, God commands Saul to go out and to wait for seven days for Samuel to come and give him some instruction. He says, Saul, don't do anything for seven days, but I'm going to send Samuel and tell you what you need to do. So Saul waits for six and a half days. And he starts to get worried because his troops start to leave. The other army begins to close in around him. He says, I got to do something because people are starting to leave. So he goes, offers a sacrifice before God in order to rally the troops to come and make sure his heart was right before God. And then Samuel shows up and goes, Saul, what have you done? God told you specifically, wait until I got here and you disobeyed. And we hear that and we go, well, that's not a big deal. He didn't wait a couple more hours. Friends, that's how it started. And the next time Saul disobeyed a little bit more, the next time a little bit more, and he slowly began to turn in on himself and then uprose this other character that started to steal the praise that he thought was due to himself. And that self-centeredness then turned and it created this whole issue that we see that's now making itself manifested in this slaughter in chapter 22. It didn't happen overnight. It happened step by step. Right, there's this old metaphor about how to boil a frog. I looked it up and I really wanted it to be true. It's not actually scientifically true, but it's a great metaphor, so we're going to use it anyway. The metaphor goes something like this. If you want to boil a fro frog, you don't take a live frog, boil the water, and throw him in. He'll jump right out, right? So you take lukewarm, tepid water. Put him in there. Let him get nice and comfortable. Swim around a little bit. Make some bubbles. Get used to the pot. Then you turn up the temperature just a little bit. You see him start to get a little uncomfortable, so you stop. You let him get then adjusted to that temperature. 
when he gets nice and comfortable, settles in, turn the temperature up just a little bit more and a little bit more. And you keep going until finally he's relaxing and boiling water and he's killing himself. Again, the, the, in real life, the frog's going to jump out way before that point. But the point is, <laughs> the illustration being the way in which you kill a frog is to slowly turn up the temperature where he doesn't even notice the change. Friends, sin works the exact same way in our life. It steps us just a little bit further than we want to go and keeps us there until we get nice and comfortable. You know, you know what? This isn't that bad. And the moment that happens, it takes us just a step further. Gets us comfortable there. Because the reality is, more than likely, the people in this room will not get to the extreme that Saul did. But listen to me. The enemy's just fine with that. He doesn't necessarily want everyone to get to this point, but he does want to destroy and ruin your life. And he's going to do it slowly and incrementally. This is what we see sin does. Its, its end is destruction and its end is always death. This is what the author tells us in James 1 verses 14 through 15. That each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And so there's the incremental nature there you see it begins with the desire it then becomes sin and when sin is fully grown its end its goal is always death it is destruction right and I love there, there's this phrase there that when sin is fully grown right it doesn't say when full is inst when sin is instant instantly transformed when sin is fully grown right how do things grow they grow slowly and they grow over time I've got a two-year-old girl. She just turned two last week. And from day to day, I don't notice any change in her. Although last week, she started talking a lot more without ever stopping. But apart from that, for the most part, day to day, she looks the same as she did the day before. But on her birthday, I put up pictures from when she was born, when she was one, and then when she was two. And she's completely different each year. But when you zoom in and you notice each time, day by day, there's hardly any difference at all. So friends, sin in our lives, as it begins to take root and it slowly grows day to day, it's hard to tell the difference. It's slow, it's incremental, but the hope is that it will become fully grown in our lives and ultimately destroy us and bring us to death. That's the end goal every single time. Thomas Brooks was an old Puritan writer who wrote a book called uh, Satan's De Devices and the Remedies Against Them. And he wrote this uh, quote in it. He said, sin is an encroaching nature. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, till it has the soul to the very height of sin. It's the way in which it works. It's the encroaching nature. It's creeping. It's going step by step. And the goal in, of sin in your life is to destroy it and those around you. And it's just fine taking its time. Satan's in no rush to destroy your life. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay and it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen, we, we are a, a church where we are all, we want to be forward and open that we are all sinners. There's no one here that's perfect. Well, there's one and his name is Jesus. That's why we worship him every single Sunday. So this is a church filled with people who are not perfect, but we know the one who is. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I do just want to take the time and be very direct with you in regards to how the Bible talks about sin and the consequences for sin. And the consequences for that sin is that one day when each of us die, we will stand before our creator. 
and he will judge each and every one of us. And if we stand on our own, still in our sin, what awaits us is eternal judgment, damnation, and his wrath for a result of our sins because he is good and holy and he is just and he cannot just turn an eye to sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug. That is the reality that waits every single person on their own. But what the gospel presents is this picture of God himself coming to earth in the midst of brokenness, living a life without sin, the only person to ever do it. He was tempted, but he was without sin. And when he went to the cross, what happened on the cross was so much more than just physical pain and torture. torture. As he stood there and was nailed to the cross, what happened, the Bible says, is that he became sin so that through faith we might become the righteousness of God in him. So on the cross, Jesus takes on all those who believe. He takes on their sin, stands in their place, and takes their punishment for them. That punishment that waits all of us at the end of our lives as we stand before our creator. If you come and you believe in Jesus, that judgment, that consequence, and that wrath is poured out on Jesus Christ in your place. And he absorbs that punishment for us so that now we don't have to fear condemnation. We don't have to fear that judgment. We can then boldly approach the throne of grace as he is now no longer our judge, but our father. Jesus changes our relationship with him. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear the judgment that awaits and the salvation that can be found today by faith. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to be good enough for it. You just have to believe. And that's what we see ultimately then in verses 20 through 23, the shelter from sin. As the story doesn't end then, as Saul went and he then annihilated this entire group of priests and he killed every single one in this family. It says in verse 20, there was one of the sons who escaped. His name was Abiathar and Abiathar fled to David and he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord so David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there that day and that he was sure to report to Saul, I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. But you will be safe with me. So Abiathar is in the middle of just destruction and he flees and he flees to David. And it's interesting what David tells him. David tells him, don't be afraid. But why does he tell him don't be afraid? He says, don't be afraid. We're going to be able to run and get away from here. He says, no, don't be afraid because the one who wants to kill me wants to kill you. You go, how is that comforting, David? It's not very helpful. Great. So just, he wants to kill everybody. Cool. I just saw him kill my entire family. How is that supposed to be comforting? David looks at him. He says, no, no, you will be safe with me because David knew the promise that God had for him and David knew that that promise would be then extended to anyone that he was with. He said, if you stay with me, you will be safe. Stay under my arm. Stay in my shadow and I will protect you. And we see David carry this out throughout the rest of this book as he watches over and protects Abiathar. Stay with me. Friends, if you walk in here this morning and there's that nagging guilt in your mind over sin in your life, and you are feeling the destruction in your own life and wondering who in the world can I turn to to find safety, to find shelter, to find forgiveness, to find some kind of hope. We cannot flee to David, 
but we can flee to David's son, Jesus Christ. And friends, the shelter and safety that we can find can be found in him. If you're on the run from the destruction of sin, you don't know where to turn, we can turn to Christ. The old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, puts it this way, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, full of pity, love, and power. He is able, he is able, he is able, and he is willing. Doubt no more. Friends, as we have felt maybe in this life, maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you've dealt closely with this sin, whether it be whatever it might be in your life, as you've come this morning, I hope what we see is the nature of sin as it starts out small, wants to get worse and worse, and before we know it, we look back and ask the question, how in the world did we get here? Friends, if we run and turn to Christ, it's the same for us. If we have been a Christian for 30 years, we've never even heard of who Jesus is. The answer is to turn to him. And so this morning, I want us to, to look at two very particular things. One uh, here we see in the text and one that's just much more practical that we see here elsewhere in the Bible. The answer and shelter we find from sin is in Jesus Christ. As he's dealt with the penalty and the power of sin in our life. The presence of sin still remains, but he's defeated our enemy and we can run to him and find safety in him no matter what you're dealing with. The enemy may be whispering in your ear right now saying, no, 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 you don't, you can't go and be honest about what you're dealing with. This church, Jesus, God, he, he doesn't, he can't handle that. If you vocalize that, do you know what the ramifications will be in your life? You can't say that. You can't share that. Friends, that is a lie from the enemy. There is no sin that is greater than the grace of God. And this church is a hospital for sinners. Every single Sunday. We are not perfect and there will not be judgment here because we all understand, but by the grace of God, we are in the exact same place. And we understand that each of us have the potential to get to the point that Saul got to. Not all of us will, but if we are not careful and we are not aware of sin's goal in our life, we over 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now will let that sin right now that seems not that big of a deal turn into something far greater. Right now, what's just ordering water and getting a Coke or a Mr. Pibb from Chipotle will turn into stealing or embezzling money from your company 30, 40 years down the road. Right now, what may just be every now and then looking at a computer screen will turn into an affair and cheating on your wife. What right now feels like just anger at somebody who's driving down the road or lashing out at your, your husband or your spouse or your kids will turn into something far more physical than that. And so we want to step back and make sure that we are cutting these things off at the beginning to take sin seriously, as seriously as God does, and to see the way in which we deal with it is to turn to Christ at the very beginning, to be honest about the shortfalls that we have in our own lives, to run to the one who's dealt with it once and for all, to rest in that promise of the gospel, Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, we can hear that, but we need to believe that. That whatever it is we have this morning, we can come and be honest about how we've fallen short because if you are in Christ, that condemnation and guilt has been dealt with. It is over and handled on the cross. 
And so we fight that presence of sin in our lives, remembering and resting in that gospel and in the grace of God. But God also gives us some very practical guidance on how to deal with sin. Later in the New Testament in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, says, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still, still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So hear what he's saying. He's saying, hey, encourage one another every day so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, so that you're not deceived, so you're not turned inward, so you're not taking further than you want to go. Be sure, brothers and sisters, turn to one another. Encourage each other daily. Be in each other's lives. Not only talking about the sin that we're dealing with, but also encouraging and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Helping each other pursue Jesus to love and stir our affections for him. And so that happens a number of different ways. But one of the things that I hope can begin to come out of this Sunday as we fight sin and fight the seriousness of sin, the thing that God has given us to do it is each other, is a family as we then live life one-on-one with each other, as all of a sudden what was just disconnected people who get together a couple times a month, three or four times a month, we then start to do life together. Not only just in small groups, we then start to have people over to our house or go get coffee or lunch with people. We begin to get together with other guys or other women and start to read through books of the Bible or read books together or do different studies as we have been begin to say, how are you fighting sin and how are you pursuing Christ? And we, with each other, are helping and encouraging one another so that none of us are hardened by sin's deception. For is there something different whenever two people sit across the table from one another and talk about how each other's doing, open up a Bible and pray for each other? There's something powerful in that. The greatest transformation I saw in my life was in college when a guy sat down across the table from me and started doing that with me. And I began to experience what this thing called discipleship was. And my faith just exploded. And I began to talk with him about the struggles I had in my life, the things that I was dealing with. We prayed for each other. And so my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that we would be serious and open and honest about the sin that we're dealing with and that also we would begin to form those kind of relationships here, helping and encouraging one another daily. And so that happens most naturally within our small groups. Those relationships kind of form there and then can spawn off and go get lunch, coffee, whatever it may be with people. Happens also with our theology classes we have. As people come early, stay late, they begin to hang out, get to know each other happens through serving. You begin to see relationships and friendships form as people come here and they help put chairs out and hang lights up and play music or serve in kids. And as those relationships form, taking that next step and going, hey, do you want to go get coffee maybe sometime this week? Maybe read through the book of Romans, read a book together, something, anything. Begin to encourage one another. And I know, listen, I, I know my... Uh, some of my closest friends are introverts, and I'm a raging extrovert. I realize that. And some of my closest friends have told me, Caleb, not everyone's like you, and saying stuff like that is going to make people uncomfortable and sweat. It's going to be awkward. And listen, it is going to be awkward. But as your pastor, for a day, I allow the awkwardness to happen. <laughs> to go up to people and say, hey, do you want to go grab lunch sometime this week? You want to go grab breakfast sometime this week? Can we go have some coffee? 
Let's get to know each other. See what's going on in each other's life. Take that step, right? Those are the two barriers that we don't want to ask someone. We don't really know what's going to happen there. It's going to be weird, right? And we fear, we kind of go back then to sixth grade where it's like, are we going to get rejected? Like, like it's, we're asking someone out on a date, like, hey, I like you. Do you like me? You want like, it's, it's not that. What, what's happening here is saying that we are brothers and sisters within this church, And we want to encourage one another. None of us have all the answers, but friends, the Christian life is not a solo project. It's a community project. It's a group project. And I hated group projects in college because all happened was one person did all the work and everyone else stood around, but that's not what we want this church to be. Where it's a group project where we're all actually doing the work. Right? That's the hope that we have here. I don't want to be a church in which the professional Christians, uh, the varsity Christians, people on staff or deacons or elders are the ones doing the ministry. That's not how we view this. I am not a varsity Christian. If you knew me, you would know that. I am not a varsity Christian. I am messed up and I need God's grace so, so much in my life every single day. Friends, the perspective we want to have is what we're doing at church is equipping the saints for the work of ministry, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4. That then as we get to do the ministry together, so we teach, I get up here and teach each week, yes, but this is not the whole of ministry. To give you some uh, tools and things to put in your utility belt to then go forward and begin to encourage one another to go out and go into your homes and share the gospel yourselves. Where evangelism isn't just inviting people to church, but it's you sitting down for coffee and going, here's what Jesus means in my life and what the gospel is and how he saved me. Where you feel equipped and competent to do that. That's what we want to happen here. And so the barriers of, of that kind of discipleship relationship is, well, I don't want to ask someone and I don't know what to go through when we meet. What are we supposed to go through? Listen, there's a million things. I know that's probably even more overwhelming, but just choose a book of the Bible and say, let's just get together, read a chapter and talk about it. If you need a book to read through apart from the Bible, there are great books. I'll send an email or put it on Facebook this week, some great books to be able to read through if you want to get together with somebody and read through a book together. Or Right Now Media. We've mentioned Right Now Media before. It's an outstanding resource. I should have all gotten an email a while ago. If you haven't, you can go on our website under resources and Right Now Media is its own page. And you can go and have free access to tons of great Bible studies on there. And you can get on there and say, hey, let's get together. There's this five-week Bible study with Francis Chan. And let's just watch one of his things, get together and talk about it. It doesn't have to be this intense, in-depth studying the original Greek. Just get together. Listen, what discipleship is, is it's friendship with a Christward direction. It's just getting together, sharing our lives, and being intentional and saying, where does Jesus fit into this? How does Jesus fit into our struggle and our sin? How does Jesus fit into our anxiety, into our money? As we prepare for death, our, our parents or grandparents' death, or dealing with sickness or with kids that don't obey, or with being a, a mom with lots of young kids and having no idea what to do and feeling like your life is out of control, how does Jesus fit into that? That's what discipleship is. And friends, Jesus has given us one another to encourage each other so that none of us might be hardened by sin's deception to point out those spots in our lives, to say, hey, you may not see this, but this is, this is a blind spot you may have because all of us have blind spots and the nature of a blind spot is you can't see it because we're blind to it. And we get to come around as a family and encourage one another, to spur one another on. 
And so as we deal with sin, we want to run to Jesus and find shelter with him, this son of David. But also we want to make sure that we are encouraging one another to begin these friendships and relationships within the church, to be in community and to get involved here. So may we fight sin in our lives with a deadly seriousness, seeing just how great and deadly our sin is. Goodness, our sin, in order to deal with it, God himself had to die. That's how serious it is. But as we see our sin as being greater and greater, we will also see the cross as becoming greater and greater and God's grace becoming greater and greater. And we'll be able to then sing what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment and his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more.